I did I tell you this story? I know you can tell you this story. Of being this tour with Diana, there was a young Irish chap playing my brother. And we were in Glasgow and we'd done a matinee and he'd gone over the road to get some meatball sandwich, which had gone straight through him. <laughs> and he basically, he was ready to go on to do a, a cue. And he looked at me very wide-eyed and went, I have to go. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He said, I, I can't go on. You, you're going to have to go on for me. I said, what are you talking about? I'm not in the scene. He said, I've got to go to the toilet. I've got and he, and he ran. <laughs> So I turned to the stage manager. What does he say? And uh, and and she said, and she was going through the script. And I okay, okay. It was literally only three lines. But I walked on stage, and of course, no one was expecting to see me. Yeah. And I very robotically said his lines, and they all very robotically responded. And then we all left. <laughs> it was so awful, though. And just because his meatballs had gone straight through, and he was going to poo his pants. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> So, Nancy, hello. Yes. Hello. Have you had an interesting week? What have you been up to this week? This week we have had the recovery from Easter holidays and um, preparation for school exams and all of that mayhem. So an awful lot of juggling, but we've been to the theatre. We've been to the theatre together. That was very nice. I've been to the theatre a lot, in fact. I've seen some quite interesting shows this week, but we've been to the theatre together and we had an amazing evening. Last Friday. Last Friday at the Corn is Green at the yeah. National Theatre. And uh, that's going to be the starting point for our conversation in this second episode of As The Actress Said to the Critic. Um, so I'm Sarah Crompton and I'm the critic. And I'm Nancy Carroll and I'm the actress. And we're going to talk now about revivals and plays that take you by surprise. Um, so the Corn is Green... I think um, nobody was really expecting to see revived on the stage of the National Theatre. It's written in 1938 and um, it's quite a creaky old thing, really. I thought when they announced it, I thought, why are they doing that? Um, and do you want to tell everybody what the, the story of it is, roughly? Well, it's a semi-autobiographical story by Emlyn Williams about uh, his own... Uh, life growing up in a Welsh mining town and um, from quite humble origins. And uh, he, at a very early age, was spotted by a young teacher who realised that he had the potential to excel. Called and, Sarah Cook. Yes, who and devoted a lot of time to him um, and helped him with French and Latin and made books available to him and basically uh, gave him the opportunity to apply for a scholarship at Oxford, which he then got. Um, and then he became, you know, through that trajectory and, and the door opening that she had provided for him, um, he had the most extraordinary life as a writer and director and actor. Um, and it, so the, the, there is a... a it is autobiographical, but it's a fantastically um, moving play about the nature of education and the nature of, I suppose, the world and, and class and personal expectation. And, you know, and it, it, it was an incredibly, I found, moving production because of this convention that Dominic Cook 
I think it must have been Dominic Cook's device, which yeah. is putting Emlyn Williams on the stage. Yeah. So the great, the, the great thing that um, Dominic Cook, the director, has done is to um, leave the text as, as far as I can see, absolutely as it was, um, but to introduce the playwright as a character. So the play itself becomes this act of imagination, yeah. and it starts off just on a bare stage with the the the, the playwright reading the stage directions, um, and um, gradually as the evening goes on, and you get more and more in in the story it it builds so actually it becomes more and more realistic so the yeah. second half you do get a, 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 a full set by Alts which is rather beautiful but I think what took me by surprise really was that it clearly it's interesting as a revival because Dominic Cook I suspect knew what he wanted to do with it so that when I was thinking of it as a sort of creaky old slightly sentimental um play which I knew from a film with Betty Davis uh, where she played Miss Moffat who is the is is the school teacher it was clear that somebody had seen something in this play yeah and I suspect it was Dominic yeah. that that made him think that he could make it into something kind of that would speak to to an audience today it was really interesting I was reading about um, that Richard Burton, who played the Morgan Evans character in, with Bette Davis, was a great friend of Emlyn Williams's son, Brooke. Um, and so, and of course, he himself came from a small town in Wales and sort of went on to have this sort of global trajectory. In, in the, you know. Did he play it? I'm not sure he played it in the film. I think oh, he played he it on a TV version. He did play oh, it. Oh, beg your pardon. And it must have been amazing to have Richard Burton because yeah. it is actually also Burton's trajectory. Yeah, completely. Of being saved from going down the mines yeah. by... Um, by a teacher, by somebody who said, who saw that they had this kind of intelligence. And um, and, and, and what, what I love about the play, certainly having seen it now, is that what it's really about is about books. And, you know, that we, we, we talked a bit last week about how the world of books can open up ideas for you. Yeah. And I feel that it's it's just this idea that she she builds a a world where it's the pages of what he can experience that will will change his view of things. It's not just that she sort of gets him to Oxford and knock down a mine. It's that that uh, she opens up a different um, mind for him, a different kind of uh, trajectory entirely in terms of how you think. Which I that seemed to me to be what. Dominic emphasised so much in the production. Yes, although there was a, there's a billion... I mean, the fact that it's called The Corn is Green and that that is the phrase in the piece of writing that she spots that is entirely from him. So the, the very essence, the centre of the play comes from his own mind. So everything that is added to him through the through her teaching it has you know it's literally that she's taken his baton as yeah. it were and run with it which i think is really really important that you know ultimately that that poetry exists in him and that she she spots that as opposed to you know the the sense that everything is layered on top you know almost um synthetically you know it's actually she she's taken that potential that already existed yeah and it's a wonderful image actually corn is green isn't it it's just kind of you know that idea that you can then um sort of ripen you know that, that, that as a that that it's all there within you and you can and can ripen the other the other decision that um the production takes which is actually what reduced me to just 
really more or less from the start floods of tears yeah. is that there's a, a a male welsh male voice choir harmonizing on stage oh my god they're just exquisite you know and and actually they're present throughout which i think you said at the time you know they're they're incredibly central at the beginning and they become less and less involved as Morgan Evans's confidence um, grows. But but the way that Dominic Cook directed it, I just found so moving. I thought it was like a masterclass, really. You know, and the the, the way that they hover around the characters and and the music itself is transcending. Um, But the, the fact that it's the minors who are who are singing it and then they you know the, the way that they're present feels quite um ancestral you know they hover like the ghosts of ancestors um buoying up this journey and it, the whole thing was just I, I literally didn't close my mouth for smiling i just thought it was it was so beautiful and as an actor you you see things and and Sometimes you imagine yourself doing it. Sometimes you are just lost in in the magic of it, and you and you think it makes you very very proud to even vaguely associate yourself with the occupation you know that these people exist in. And I and yeah, I, and, I, and, and Nicola Walker's the Miss Moffat, and and it is wonderful and does all the things that you know Nicola Walker does. I mean, she's just sort of so. Um, yeah, she's incredibly good at communicating thought. I think actually, yeah. she's you can see what, what what she's thinking a lot of the time, and uh, she's wonderful. But actually, the whole cast are um, extraordinary, and they. Uh, I think you said they've got this. There's this sense of which that there's a, a watchfulness. I was really struck when I was watching it how still it is. That, yeah. Um, Lots of productions that you get that sense where, you know, there's busyness going on on stage, but an awful lot of this is very stale and it's people talking. And you made the point that it is everybody sort of watching each other and it makes the audience therefore watch with this kind of level of concentration. Yeah, I think it was just beautiful. And I think, you know, and a great celebration of Welsh writing and Welsh actors. You know, a lot of those actors, you know, have done a lot of work in Wales. And, um, you know, Richard Lynch, again, who I hadn't seen before, was just glorious. They were, you know, the... You know what the one thing that the national can do when it does those great big sprawling dramas is a great celebration and 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 peopling the stage in a way that a lot of other institutions can't do, which in itself is incredibly moving. Just to have that collective energy, and when you you know you do a play that hasn't been done before and you set it somewhere that isn't often celebrated, and you can bring in loads of new actors that don't necessarily you don't won't necessarily see on London stages very often that that is the magic of that space and that building and and it's just incredibly moving and you realize again you know as an actor sitting there you think my god these people are amazing and I haven't seen them before and my god there are just so many of us yeah and and the um the the Morgan Evans is in fact making um Ewan Davis is in fact making his stage debut and and um Again, it's a performance that you think, oh, I'm going to want to watch this person yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as he goes on. And it, it brings into focus, I think, the whole 
purpose of the National Theatre at many levels, because obviously it's a house that is there to create new drama, um, but its real function is as a kind of repository of revival. And I'm always struck when I go there... Um, well, I'm always struck as a journalist, actually, by how impossible it is for the National to um, achieve everything that everybody wants it to achieve. You yeah. know, that, that, that there are so, there's, the weight of expectation on this theatre is so great. But I'm also struck when I go there of how um, special it is to so many people, both in the audience and on the stage. I, when we were in lockdown, I interviewed um, Jessie Buckley, who had hoped to make her National Theatre yeah. debut in Romeo and Juliet and because of the circumstances of lockdown she ended up rather brilliantly making it on film which they they, they actually filmed on, on, on the Littleton stage yeah. which is where we saw the corners green but she was kind of really frustrated because she wanted all those kind of famous traditions of the national to come into play because it's a place that actors want to be I mean it, is that right? I mean as an actor do you feel that's the case? It's just amazing I think you know well, there's, a, there's another conversation to be had about the nature of companies and rep companies, and I, you know, which the National has tried to do a, a number of times since it was originally built. And um, but there, even when you're not in a sort of long-standing company, when every one of those three theatre spaces is full and you have three companies, all of the all of the dressing rooms face onto the quad. Um, I think it's, I don't know, it has an official term, but, the, you know, the, all of the, um, you know, the hair and makeup and wigs department and the costume department on all the offices all have the sort of glazed area that then all looks in onto this sort of square. Um, I'm not describing this very well, but basically what happens is that in the first preview and then press night at beginners, the tradition is that you come to the window and bang, and there's this sort of drumming that happens. And it's it, when I first went to the National years and years ago, I didn't know about it, but I have them work with actors who have heard about it so that when they come, they have this expectation of this extraordinary yeah. thing. And it doesn't fail to move or impress. It's just, it's extraordinary, the noise but also the the sort of cry to war, really, of of everybody just yelping and banging on the window. And it sort of revs you up, you know. And I I mean, I think I've done eight shows or something. So what was your first first show at the National? uh, The first one I did was a Christopher Hampton play called The Talking Cure that Howard Davis directed um, about the relationship between Jung and Freud. Uh, with Ray Fiennes and um, Jodie May and um, the lovely Jimmy Hazeldean, who um, really, really sadly we lost during the previews. Um, but it was an extraordinary experience because that was in the Cottesloe as was, which of course is now the Dorfman. And what's so extraordinary about that space is you can adapt it in so many different ways. And um, I think initially it had been written as a as a film script, and so there was a bit of an issue with how you whiz from one scene to another. So um, the the designer, and that's terrible. I can't remember who designed it. So forgive me. Um, had had created um, like a sort of doll's house 
stage. So we were literally able to walk from one scene to another. Um, yeah, that was, that was my first experience. But it, it's just such an exciting place to work. Yeah. Because so often with the programming, you'll have such different work going on simultaneously. You know, and you might have, a, you know, a melodrama on one space and a musical in another and a new play in another. And, you know, there aren't that many places where that exists. Yeah. What's always struck me about going there is I think the first time I, I, I was kind of I was really excited to go before I even went. I mean, it's the same thing, really. So yeah. I, I had a friend who was a dresser. At, uh, uh, he's done many things in theatre, but he was a dresser at the Old Vic. Yeah, and he um, and he therefore used to when Olivier was there with his company, and he used to tell me these most amazing stories about the excitement of you know seeing productions there, like the famous Othello with Olivier as um, uh, Othello and Maggie Smith as yeah. Desdemona, and and um, Long Day's Journey into Night, and you know, so I was um, full of those stories. Yeah, yeah, and he also used to tell brilliant stories about the move to the the new building you know where um he told me one thing which i've never known entirely true but they've been warned and they and uh, when they moved to the new building that um if the queen put on her gloves it meant that she was bored and apparently she put them on after about 10 minutes no. <laughs> whatever she she was watching a, a Pinero, i think it was a, oh, yeah. kind of opening play and um yeah so I, I i was really excited and the first thing i went to see was um paul schofield in Volponi oh. and I was um, in those days you could stand at the back of the Olivier I don't know I don't think you can still do that anymore so you could queue for tickets on the day yeah, and they were student rates so they were cheap and you could stand at the back and I remember just thinking wow you know I've arrived this is so exciting to be in yeah, London yeah. and really ever since then I've always felt that about the national and I'm always I am as I say as, as a journalist always conscious that the national is like the lightning rod for everything that everybody's always very worried about in yeah. the state of theatre so whoever's in charge um, is always broadly speaking doing it wrong <laughs> that, that, yeah. you know but in fact if you're an audience quite often a lot of the time they're doing it right and you just go along always no, no, it's it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because there's sort of there's no accounting for taste, and I think, you know, it's a very interesting conversation about the nature of theatre as a political forum, and about subsidised theatre, and whether or not you have a duty of care to allow your space to be a political forum because you are a subsidised theatre. You know, you don't... There's always the need to be commercial, of course, um, and, you know, to respond to what people want. Like, at the moment, there you know, there's lots of different conversations happening, but also people really, really want to feel happy because the last few years have been a bit rubbish. Um, so that, that balance, I think, is desperately trying to be struck across the whole of the country, you know, and, and in film and television making, you know, to, to push political questions and answers and opening up conversations, but also put stuff out there that really, really sort of puts the sunshine back into yeah. people's lives. Yeah, I think it also, I think that the kind of the subsidised theatre is always going to be a problem. And I, I think to some extent it started with Peter Hall because he was so sort of... Um, fiercely um, 
political, I think, yeah. you know, when he when he was there. And I think that kind of set the tone for the relationship between the national and various governments of the day. Yeah. Um, I mean, slightly like the BBC, but on a smaller scale that you, you are, rep- you're right, you're representing something. What I like about what um, Rufus Norris has done is try and make national mean national as much as he can by yeah. you know doing co-productions with regional companies by really being conscious of the need to um, address issues of diversity and bringing in different voices and yet he has been under almost um, constant attack really perhaps for not being um, uh, populist enough perhaps or perhaps for um, you know not having quite enough successes but then you look at it and you know they've the, the ocean at the end of the lane has just closed. It's had a brilliant uh, new play in Small Island. Um, I, I, it, it, it is just a rich place, really. I yeah. think. How? What's your What's your um, best memory of being there? What What would be your kind of favourite? Is that an unfair question to ask? You? No, what's your no, it isn't. Production? I mean, I think in, in terms of socially, the backstage and the corridors and the blue room and the green room and getting to know the people that work in the building and have been there for decades and and being feeling that you're sort of part of a company really even if you go away for a bit and you come back that's the best feeling and I, I mean I grew up in in southeast London and so I'm sure I've said this before but the, but you know it's a real mecca to me and and I had my moment my when I was a kid, I went to see with my grandparents. I went to see Guys and Dolls. Um, yeah, the with, really famous Richard really, Eyre yeah, production yeah. with uh, Bob Hoskins and Julie McKenzie and oh God, I can't remember which version of it. Ian Charlson. Ian Charlson, uh, Bill Patterson. Yeah, uh, you know, and to sit in the Olivier as a kid and um, watch that and think that's where that's where I want to be. And it wasn't a it wasn't a sort of it was just a sort of coming home feeling. And I, I've always had that standing on any stage. You think, oh, my God, it's just, you know, it, it has a sort of thrum. You know, I, I took some friends to the Globe a couple of weeks ago and the brilliant Michelle Terry um, showed us around. And as we walked through those doors, that, that wooden stage has a sort of thrum to it. And so any moment of of walking onto the stage particularly when you've been in a rehearsal room for a few weeks and then the reality of the fact that within a number of days you'll have an audience and the first time you walk onto that stage and and you sort of your heartbeat goes up a notch and you you know vocally you've just got to push it out there and and, it, and it's a sort of awakening every single time it's so glorious and it feels like such a privilege and I just love it so any one of the shows I've done there where you have that moment you think right I'm going to do this now and I've it, it's those are always my favorite moments we critics are always writing about how difficult those stages are and yeah. and um there have been problems with audibility in the past are they difficult stages I mean do is the Littleton or the, or the Olivia are the difficult stages to perform on I don't know I mean I've uh, Peter Hall always talked about the perfection of the sort of amphitheater in terms of that vo- vocally you know, that there wasn't anything that compared with the, those original stages. I don't know any space that doesn't have its own idiosyncrasies that you have to sort of negotiate. And that's OK. You know, I think, you know, you have to believe that that the original design had a, had a, um, um, ambition, 
you know, either to emulate, like the Olivier, to emulate a, an amphitheatre or, you know, whether you were working with what you already had in terms of the the original bush being a, a, above a pub or, you know, every single space has eccentricities. And if you if you know that, then you just work with it. And And I think small spaces, I love the fact that they demand honesty. And big spaces, you just have to be really, really clear about your intention and get it out there. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, I went back uh, this last autumn, winter, and that was the first time I've been at the National since they've miked spaces. And that, again, is a new learning curve. However, you know, in terms of, again, these conversations that we're having at the moment that are really important access, you know, it, it's an important bridge that's being built so in terms of um audio described performances and people who uh, yeah so they know, can hear the yeah, yeah the, hear the, the dialogue the Sorry, loops, I don't know the, yes. the term yeah but you know all of that is vastly improved so yeah. that's important yeah and actually if it means that you still got to be really really clear in your intention and really really clear about how you use your voice um and you know the brilliant Jeanette Wilson, who who's runs the the voice department at the National, is always there with you, you know, on your journey to getting to performance ready. Um, you know, but the, the, I don't. I have never worked in a theatre that doesn't didn't have something yeah. that needed to be understood. Yeah, I always think it was interesting because um, Cornish Green is in the Littleton, and in some ways, I've seen some of my favourite things in the whole world in the Littleton. But I'm always struck when I go in of of, of how hard it must be to design for the Littleton because yeah, it's, yeah. it's so very wide. And um, I noticed in... And, and then when you see the space used brilliantly, as Dominic Coconaults do, you don't notice that. The width actually seems part of the the whole um, idea of, of this... Um, boy coming out of darkness and into finding himself you know it just all becomes part of of what you're experiencing and the confidence with which the space is manipulated means you don't think about it so I suspect it's true that as an audience you only ever think about the difficulties of the space if the production hasn't quite hit the mark yeah Um, and I certainly think it's true for that it's hard for new plays to thrive in the Olivier. I mean, I've seen things that really, I think, would have worked better elsewhere. On the other hand, I also remember seeing Pravda there, which was a new play and which was, you know, Anthony Hopkins as um, a kind of pseudo press baron in a play by Howard Brenton and David Hare. And it was just, it knocked your socks off because it absolutely took that space by the scruff of the neck and said, you know, we're writing this big play that's going on there. So it is, I think that's the interesting thing. I'm also interested in what the um, National does choose to revive. My my slight sense is that, and and why the corn is green did actually feel kind of fresh, um, at my slight sense is that in some ways the um, uh, revivals have, have broadened. I mean, certainly, you know, we've seen a lot more plays by people um, like James Baldwin and um, August Wilson, you know, so we've seen plays that we hadn't seen for a long time that represent a different strand, if you like, of, of, of theatre writing, a lot of different American plays. I feel in terms of the, you know, the traditional British repertory that in a sense, the, the canvas has slightly narrowed. We've, we get a lot of Chekhov, we get a lot 
of um, Ibsen, but not so much maybe Strindberg or not so much, certainly, you know, bit of Coward, more Rattigan. You know, it, it's interesting how things seem to come in and out of fashion. Um, not much Shaw, who, of course, was one of the founding fathers of the National yeah, Theatre and yeah. doesn't really get much of a look in nowadays. Maybe rightly. I, I don't really have a sense of whether it's right or wrong. I mean, do, do you have a feeling about that? You know, what we well, should I think be... people are read. You know, as you say, go through phases of rediscovering things. I remember doing um, a Harley Granville Barker play there, The Voisey Inheritance. And then again, we then did, quite soon after, we did uh, Waste at the Almeida. And he, again, was one of the founding fathers of the National Theatre. And, you know, and, and actually, when I'm done Rattigan plays, people always say, I forget how good he is. And I think for me, Granville Barker is is literally, I think, one of the most perfect playwrights because, of course, he was an actor and a director as well. And he had a, a real sense of, um, I, you know, wanting to achieve things with his life on behalf of British theatre quite sort of openly, which, you know, the British sensibility, we're not very good at that. We all think, oh, he's a bit cocky, but actually he was brilliant. And he he had a plan, you know, and, he, and he's such a great writer. And uh, Why is he a great writer? Because I'm always a bit, again, I'm a bit... I don't know really about Grumman. I think because there's always a clarity to the nature of his characters. You know, I mean, I like Shaw as well, but often he uses um, characters for sort of a polemic plan, you know, so that isn't necessarily the easiest thing to perform. I, you know, I haven't done that much. I'd love to do more, but he, his plays are often so political there is a, there will be soapbox moments that as an as a performer you have to think how do I work this in how do I make this believable. Um, however, I also know that the playwright really wants to get this message across, and so that's you, you have to find a balance as an actor to find naturalism within that. Because um, so often, you know, if, if an audience don't go with it, they, you can switch off at that point. But I think Granville Barker. For me, I I just love performing his plays. They they just have a, a such a clear journey, and also he he was brilliantly understanding um, of, of actors. That he would always make sure it's very very clear in his stage directions, and he always made sure there was a lot of furniture on a stage that the actors had to negotiate. So that they couldn't take centre stage and just sort of declaim in this sort of perfect moment. They, well, they had to walk around the edges all well, the time. Well, you know, it just forces you to to you know be in the space and and work with the space and and then so I said there's a love of naturalism, I guess. So it doesn't have the same declamatory um, nature, and he was again equally political, but less um, obviously so. I have I, I've not seen much uh, Granville Barker, and um, I've seen Waste, which I, I did think was really um, uh, fascinating. But it's interesting when you say about the amount of furniture. So the National yeah. recently did um, Rutherford and Sons. Oh yes, um, uh, the Gita Saab Gita Sabri, uh, play, and um, that was fascinating because there was so much furniture on stage. Yeah. Um, and I went with uh, my uh, clever and very observant niece and she noticed that the, 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 the design had deliberately meant that there weren't quite enough chairs for the cast. So that uh, depending on where you were in the family, you never got a chair. Oh, right. And right. it was such a, and it was really interesting to see that 
kind of that degree of sort of realism, but also with a kind of symbolic purpose so that, that, you know, there simply weren't enough spaces for people um, to sit down. Um, and it, yeah, I, I mean, I do feel that revivals are plays. It makes you um, consider your own history and make you look at things again. The the other brilliant, brilliant revival they did recently was Les Blancs, which was kind of a play I'd never seen that isn't often put on. And you really right. felt that was, you know, uh, so much the national fulfilling all its purposes of being yeah. both political, but also, you know, looking at the history of colonialism through a very specific view. Um, and it was just kind of, yeah, magical to see that coming to life on a stage. And I guess the trouble with revivals and why everybody's always got their view of whether we're writing, whether we're getting the right revivals, is that that, that, that there's simply so many texts that you could possibly um, revive. And so what you do need is someone like Dominic Cook to come along and say, I have a view of this play. And it makes it really important to put it on the stage now. And yeah, I think that that has to be the purpose. You can't just kind of say, oh, you know, we need to do so many restoration comedies and so many yes. um, 19th century dramas. You just need a sense of somebody wanting to stage it or somebody having a vision of staging it or with Le Blanc, you know, a sense that it's just been so long ignored that it deserves to come back. Well, there's a sense, isn't there, that, you know, that there's no such thing as an original story. There are original voices and perspectives, but often, you know, the, within plays, you know, the, the the nature of them or, or the formula or, you know, the outcome or, or the way in which they're told has been inspired by something else. And so it's genuinely interesting if you think, OK, well, I did a play years ago, the uh, Marivo play called um, The False Servant. And again, you know, that took from Twelfth Night. So you think, well, that's interesting. Well, so let's look at Twelfth Night again through the eyes of having just done the Marivo and and how all of these different characters uh, take from, you know, previous stories, previous versions. And so I think that's the nature of revival can be really, really interesting as long as you're clear about why you're doing it and what this generation's perspective you know, what light can be shone uh, upon it again, or the nature of politics and history and how things come full circle and colonialism and capitalism and racism and homophobia. Those are not problems that have been solved. And so to, 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 to revive things that discuss those issues is incredibly important. So I, uh, yeah, I, I think, I do think that's absolutely true. And I think it's also true. My parents were teachers and I, so my, my I think one of the reasons I spent my whole time sobbing um, in the Cornish Green was that, you know, that idea that a teacher can change a life, yeah. which you see over and over again, you know, you see it with Ian Wright, who talks about how this one teacher at his school saved him. I mean, it's clearly the case that a teacher can save a life. Um, and that idea, again, of the expansiveness of education education plus the kind of close harmony singing which is very much in my own oh, background yeah, in, yeah. In, in in the north of, of, of my mind sort of being Methodist people you know doing the same thing but what also what I also like about going to the theatre and, and and sort of I just want to talk about the the end is that is how things tie up with other things yeah so yeah. that I I um one of the things that uh, 
struck me about the corn is green is that it's about a melodrama and drama. So earlier in uh, last week, I think, or maybe the week before, um, I've been to see uh, a really fascinating play called uh, Daddy at the Almeida um, by uh, Jeremy O'Harris, who is, people might know, is a writer for Euphoria, who's a very, very... Um, hot, young American writer, really interesting in, in how he uses form, really interesting in the bravery of the subject matter he tackles. And um, Daddy was really fascinating. But I was equally fascinated by, um, there was an essay in the programme um, by uh, Brandon Taylor um, about melodrama, which I I mean, you know, sort of stupidly, I hadn't thought of. As a critic, I, I know that... I occasionally use the word melodramatic as a bad thing. You know, I quite often say, if I haven't liked something, um, that it was melodramatic. But actually, what um, uh, Taylor argues in this essay is that melodrama goes straight to the heart of things. That there's a, the reason that melodrama is such a powerful form is that it absolutely hits you in the gut. It's not about very, sort of the exact recreation of reality it's about truth and and there's a difference between reality which you might get in um in on a stage where you you, or or an approximation of reality and you know this this melodrama drama that hits you with the force of absolute truth and I was fascinated to relate that to what um, this production of The Corn is Green has done because in a way that's what it does it actually it, it it sacrifices verisimilitude it sacrifices the kind of you know the proper set it introduces music um, and it introduces kind of the potency of um, real feeling with that relationship between, you know, the character of the playwright and the character of the boy. Yeah. Um, and it is more melodramatic, but that's why it's just kind of the most brilliant uh, experience yeah. in a way. But, it, I mean, it, mellow meaning music and drama meaning dramatic. It's just literally the sort of the partnership of music and drama together is its original sort of definition. And I think it's, it, you know, having live musicians on stage or live singers is always such a moving experience. And transcending uh, you know it it transcends you as an audience member you you immediately lost uh in in the event of this story you're immediately reminded that what you're watching isn't real but to open yourself up to something and it's it's like the difference between um, you know, poetry and prose. They may come from the same thought, but poetry forces you to connect with words on a sort of visceral, emotional level, you know, and, 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 and the very heartbeat of the writer's intent and that music takes you somewhere else yeah. and theatre takes you somewhere else. And so, you know, it it was it was so the the experience of that play i've been reminded of so many other things but it was such a perfect piece and that seems quite a good moment in which to end this our second episode of as the actress said to the critic i hope you've enjoyed it i hope it's maybe made you think of revivals that you've liked do keep listening to us and we'll be here again next week we'll see you soon <laughs>